Hello and a very warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. And I am truly thrilled to be joined today by Brian Cuban. Um, Brian is the younger brother of Dallas Mavericks owner and entrepreneur Mark Cuban. He's a Dallas-based attorney, author and addiction recovery advocate. He is a graduate of Penn State University and the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Brian has been in long-term recovery from alcohol, cocaine, and bulimia since April 2007. His first book, Shattered Image, My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder, chronicles his first-hand experiences living with and recovering from 27 years of eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorder, or BDD. Brian's most recent best-selling book, The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow and Redemption, is an unflinching look back at how addiction and other mental health issues destroyed his career as a once successful lawyer and how he and others in the profession redefined their lives in recovery and found redemption. And do keep an eye out for Brian's debut novel, The Ambulance Chaser, which comes out next month, December 7th, via the Post Hill Press. Brian, such a pleasure to have you with me today. Thanks for having me on. And let's dive right into some deep questions here. Um, Your story of recovery, specifically from alcohol and substance uh, abuse, has a rather profound rock bottom involving the trading of championship tickets for the Dallas Mavericks, which happened to be owned by your brother and the tickets supplied by him for cocaine into a cycle of stashing and flushing of said cocaine in in a paranoid frenzy, which you you go into a lot of detail in in the wonderful book, uh, uh, The Addicted Lawyer. Now, my own recovery, uh, two years sober uh, uh, next week, took more of a gentle route with a, a lost phone, probably the only kind of event that I can link to my moment of clarity when it came to reassessing my relationship with alcohol. But I'm interested on your take. Do you feel that there is naturally or tends to be a rock bottom moment for people entering recovery? Or do you think there are red flags that everyone can be aware of in preventing uh, 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 an addiction from manifesting or becoming even more uh, uh, damaging. Well, I rarely use the term rock bottom only for context with some people because in recovery, the goal should be not to have to face the worst, yeah. right? Before you finally uh, begin sobriety or whatever your path is. Uh, so we, the goal should be to recover at the highest possible point, not the lowest possible point, right? Yeah. You, you know, we want to get you before you uh, wipe out a family on a, on a highway or some some other terrible thing happens. So, and as far as red flags, red flags are when someone's in the uh, throes of addiction. You, I, at least for me, I didn't have the I didn't have the self awareness to acknowledge red flags. Hundred percent. Red flags are what other people see, right? Yep. So yes, there are red flags, <laughs> but red flags aren't things I think people going through it tend to see because you're right in the middle of it. And if you saw them, you'd recover. You'd step into recovery. A hundred percent. And where? But, Go on, Brian. And rock bottom, and you know, and again, I hate the term. I call it a recovery tipping point. Uh, that can take. That can be dependent on uh, genetic factors, social factors, this specific, this specific moment in time it happens in. 
I mean, in 2005, I was suicidal the summer of 2005 and took my first trip to a psychiatric hospital. That wasn't my quote unquote rock bottom. (laughs) So you just don't know. And if we had a way to figure out when that would be, things would be a lot better for many people. I think I'm going to realign my lexicon to that tipping point analogy rather than rock bottom, because I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the point you've made about others seeing the red flags but not addressing it, it, it makes me think in a professional context, why do you think we're not better as lawyers, as putting our arm around someone and saying, you know, as something as blunt as has your drinking picked up? I know that's it sounds awful even coming out of my mouth. Do you think the there's a particular reason why we're we're not doing that? And I personally felt like it was only my wife who had the I don't know the the experience and also the love to be able to say, Tom, you've picked up the drinking. Let's talk about this. What do you think on that? Well, I think there are reasons for that. Yes, the uh, legal profession, I think, in the certainly in the States, and I think extending the UK and other places, has developed as a, it's changed now, obviously, with gender roles and things like that. It developed as a male-dominated, uh, you know, pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps culture, yeah. and that takes time to change. Also, uh, to reach out to someone can require someone to explore their own vulnerabilities. And we are a profession that does not like to seem vulnerable. And I mean, in the in law school, we tend to be taught to take advantage of vulnerability yep. in the court process, right? <laughs> in the courtroom and things like that, not to explore our own. And lawyers are, and, and I think those are a couple of the reasons. It is a, we've, it is a very uh, driven, uh, intense, a profession where people are worried about their own stuff. And plus, uh, you may feel it's none of your business. What if I'm wrong, right? Uh, and somebody may seem, quote, unquote, high functioning. Well, yeah, he's drinking a little bit more. She's drinking a little bit more. But look at that. She just won a huge court case. She's, she's kicking butt in the courtroom. There, there, it's not a problem. So we have this myth, of, and it is a myth, of the high functioning. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. My analogy when it comes to high functioning is high altitude, which usually means the crash is uh, is much more significant. There is, there, well, there's no high functioning. Well, here's what happens. I call it the uh, Peter Principle of addiction. The Peter Principle, as some may know, is when we work ourselves up to our level of incompetence. And then when we hit that level, we look, we learn more, we we improve ourselves, and we keep raising our level of incompetence to advance in the corporation, right, or the law firm. With the Peter principle of addiction, what happens is our level of incompetence, even for quote unquote high functioning lawyers, keeps dropping. Yeah. As we become more and more impaired and more and, and just go deeper into our addictions, whatever it is, and instead of doing what we need to do to raise it again whether it's seek help, maybe seek help, we, we kneel. We kneel under it so we can tell ourselves that we're working up to our, we're still giving maximum effort, right? Yeah. The work expands to fit the time available. And we keep kneeling and kneeling. And finally, the, le- the level of incompetence is down here. And now people are starting to notice you commit malpractice, uh, the, you know, the, you've committed a disciplinary infraction, you've been arrested, or boom, 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 boom. Or it may not even be that extreme. 
at the best, at our best level, we're giving a, our client a dollar for a dollar, maybe even a dollar and a quarter for a dollar value, right? Now, all of a sudden, you're giving 50 cents for a dollar, yeah. uh, 25 cents for a dollar. And now people are noticing and now you're terminated or this or that. Let's get some, let's get people when they're up here and help them up here. A hundred percent. And something I'm really interested in here is the the profession as a community. You know, in so many initiatives, wherever you are in the world, we're talking about, you know, the the, the fraternity, the community, the profession, the family. And so much of it feels so shallow when we look at what's actually done on a profession-wide basis. And in the US, there's some great research from the American Bar Association, which actually underpins a lot of uh, your book, uh, The Addicted Lawyer, in the in the preface. And it showcased how there was um, higher than average reported uh, consumption of alcohol and, 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 and drugs and so on in the legal profession, but lower than average when compared with the, the, the US populace of problematic. So there's this instant uh, kind of evidence of a, of a profession who, you know, drinks hard and plays hard, but of course I don't have a problem. I'm interested in your take on how, how useful are things like that, that, that research and that, that professional commentary, because Africa does not have this yet. There's no conformity. There's no single body that really seems to be willing to grab the nettle of of mental health and and well-being. So what lessons are there to learn from what you've seen done in the US, which does seem to be making at least some progress? Well, the societal lesson and the evidence-based lesson is that that study uh, really began to change the paradigm of how the profession views struggling lawyers and problem drinking and depression. So yet it was an incredibly important groundbreaking study and has had a uh, profound impact on the profession in the States. Uh, We now, the ABA, the American Bar Association, which isn't a licensing organization, obviously. I don't know if people know that. Uh, Yeah, that's on on a state level, right? That's on a state level. Yeah. That's right. It, it's a, it's just like it, people pay dues and get and do different things. It's just a dues paying kind of organ voluntary organization. Yeah. So, but they now have the wellness pledge where law firms sign on and agree to do the, hit these benchmarks and do these things. We have uh, they they have more resources now for solo lawyers and small firm lawyers, which is the majority of the profession in the states. Uh, so we things have changed since then. Are they? Are do we still have a ways to go? Of course. We just had a recent survey uh, that came out during the pan. Well, we're still in the pandemic, but that covered uh, a portion of time during the pandemic, and it was lawyers out of California and Washington D.C. that found that forty uh, percent of females are considering leaving the profession. Yeah, because of many mental health struggles, and we still have the high drinking issues. So we we know that at least as we sit here today, and the pandemic has a lot to do with that, of course, that uh, we are still a profession in crisis uh, because because of uh, isolation and loneliness have added to all these things, and people may not be be as willing as to to reach out because you're reaching out by Zoom and you're not can do this and. 
Human connection is so important when it comes to sobriety and recovery. I, I couldn't agree more on the connection point. There's certain people in my life who I have just lent on and, and the joy that you had on being able to have them lean back on you once you've got yeah. a certain amount and, of recovery. And that has taken on, taken on a different uh, tint as we, you know, in the pandemic, because we're to, to a large extent, we're our compassionate community, which is important. Uh, in the legal profession, our personal lives, to have that compassionate community to rely on and who's going to reach out to you when they think you're struggling, that has become more virtually based. And that's just not as good. Yeah. That's just not, and so we see these higher rates. Uh, I mean, if you just take a look at the big bubble of addiction in the United States, here in the States, we lost 93,000. And this isn't the legal profession. This is just overall. We lost 93,000 people in 2020 to fatal overdoses. 93,000, it's a record. It's an unbelievable number. And to, to look at the, you know, and look at this through the lens of the legal profession, we talk about compassion and community. This is so juxtaposed sometimes to the, you know, the, the International Bar Association recently released a wonderful piece of research on, on mental well-being. And um, you and I both know how intrinsically linked substance and alcohol abuse is with overall mental well-being. Um, and it shows that the only region, and this is will resonate with you, that uh, indicated higher levels of burnout and stress than African markets, sub-Saharan African, was East Coast America. Now, there is no reason why a young associate in a Zambian-based or a, a Namibian or Botswana-based law firm should be experiencing the same workload pressures as a white shoe New York lawyer. Is this profession fundamentally in need of a realignment to build the kind of compassionate environments that you and I both know are so important to mental well-being? Are we, is, you know, this to, to put devil's advocate hat on, is this a profession doomed to some degree <laughs> of mental health and substance abuse crisis unless there's a fundamental uh, realignment? That's a great question. And I, to, there has, there, there is talk about systemic resets in terms of uh, how performance is judged, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, big law, white shoe, or however you phrase it, big the law. billable uh, hour. The billable hour, sure. It's a, uh, it, it is what it is right now, but we do have to talk about that. But again, you were talking about a system that's gone on multiple hundreds of years. I mean, you know, the lawyers and how we've, the, uh, the way success is measured in mm -hmm. law firms, especially big law, the way we measure success ourselves, right? Even when you're solo, you got to keep up your standard of living. And now that becomes a feed the monster, uh, 100%. to the, to the, uh, you know, all, I'm searching for the right word. It becomes a feed the monster in lieu of everything else. Mm -hmm. So family, personal well-being. So there is talk about systemic resets, but I don't know how far we are away from something like that. And I don't think anyone in this country knows. And we're not, I mean, but there is, we, you do see things written about it. Uh, you do see people sent, you know, we, you do see conversations about it, but I don't think we're anywhere near that being uh, the case I, in this country. I, I do agree, and I would resonate that in the African markets that we deal with. Do you know what I think, though? I think 
there's so much benefit that could still be derived from some of the smallest actions. Like everyone instantly, we talk about systemic resets and realignment and, uh, you know, pressing the reset button. But I genuinely feel that if one managing partner in a law firm took a moment out of their day to walk and go see the associates and spend 10 minutes one-on-one with each associate and saying, how are you? How are your stress levels? Is there anything we can do to help? That even that personal, that 10 minutes could mean the world. So it, my it does lead to a question is, do you feel that it's the personal undertaking and decisions of senior individuals in the profession that have the greatest potential for a a bold impact and a instantaneous impact on the profession. Absolutely. And you're seeing that to some extent in the big law, in the mm-hmm. AMLA law firms, where people at the top, especially those of that have signed on to the ABA wellness pledge, American Bar Association will have taken those kind of bulls by the horns and they're trying to do better. But you have to remember the people on the masthead Right, are usually people of my age or Gen, or, uh, or Gen X and have come up in the old culture yeah, and have come up to an extent in a different way. So, well, that doesn't mean they're all just a Neanderthal and we think this way, right? And that's <laughs> it. If you don't like it. I mean, I've talked to lawyers uh, younger than me who are not uh, AMLAW, but are law firms of uh, 75 people. Uh, in the right around there have said, I don't care about wellness. I, this is a, you know, you need to do your job. Yeah, and you need you to toughen up because I'll t- I managed. <laughs> well, yeah. something like that. Yes. And, but uh, more, more the attitude that I want you to get well, but not on my dime. If you can't do the job, I'll find, I'll find somebody who will because this is a medium-sized firm. Profit margins are thin. I want. I have to give excellent service to my client. Losing a client could be the difference. One client, big client, could be the difference between a loss and a profit for my year. So I don't have the time or the resources to help you. Go get well. That is not an uncommon attitude uh, in, in medium-sized firms or a pro- and for sure in small firms. And it may not be uncommon in... Uh, I'm sure it goes on in AMLAW white shoe firms. They're just not as vocal about that because in an AMLAW firm, if that if a masthead guy or a uh, a senior partner said that, it might get out. And yeah, going to cause some issues. I mean, putting uh, the ethical so, putting the ethical uh, uh, retort against that kind of behavior aside, isn't that like manifest short termism though? Because if you saw in someone that you bring into your employment family, the right kind of skill sets that you think would set them up as being a right, you know, cog in the machine all the well. But if that cog just needs a little bit of oil, surely that is a lot more time efficient and cost effective than replacing the whole damn, you know, cog, to use that horrible analogy. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's a, uh, it's kind of a weird paradox, right? Because, uh, the if you, the U.S. workplaces in general lose billions of dollars every year to uh, mental health issues, yeah. billions, and so the legal profession is part of the workplace, and so you're losing uh, whether it's pre whether it's malpractice premiums, whether it's lost production, uh, lost time, uh, and things like that. You're you're losing money, and then to just take an attitude like that, where you've brought in this person who is highly trained and 
you're either working him into leaving, uh, you're working him into a mental health issue that you're working somebody who tipping into problem drinking. So why, why not uh, you? Why not put the tools in place so that so you can catch it at the different yeah. so you have different stop gaps and help that person be the lawyer uh, he or she can be. Or they can be. I couldn't agree more. Uh, look, there's something we talked about. We just about. don't see that in a lot of firms. And again, that is a lot of that is generational. Okay, especially when you get below big law, where you have much more, uh, where you have systems in place to a large extent, whether it's uh, your EAP or employees assistance, uh, employees assistance committee or yep. whatever things like that. Uh, you know, you just uh, it's it's just counterproductive. I couldn't agree more. Um, And I just think that behavior is so lazy to express that, well, I managed it and it was okay for me that people just need to understand that just with a very slight mindset shift, they can have such a dramatic impact on on someone else's well-being. Like simply instead of striding the floors to beast the associates, stride the floors to pick them up and, and do something pleasant, you know what, if, if, if a lawyer chooses not to do that, and their law firm starts to decline, there is zero sympathy for me, to be honest. Well, and you also, we, we also have to remember that it's change has to, especially in big law, you have corporate clients, and you have, those corporate clients have their own lawyers, right, who are managing yeah. the litigation, and they're talking, and they're, you know, liaising with their, with the law firm. Uh, boundaries need to be set top to bottom. Right. Uh, just even the littlest things. If a if a brief isn't due for a month, don't berate an associate to get it done next week. Yeah. Uh, and don't call. And, you know, and, the, and that goes down to your corporate counsel, setting boundaries and not setting unrealistic expectations. And, you know, and, and being compassionate all the way down. Talk yeah, I, I can and agree. More. Some changes like that. Toyota has a. You know, I, I was at a corporate counsel conference and you have Toyota and all these different companies. They, 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 they are becoming much more in tuned to how they manage litigation, right? And what expectations they set for the law firms they hire. Yeah, yeah. So you don't have to call me. You know, I'm not going to call you on a Saturday or a Sunday or at, I'm not going to email you at 2 a.m. to see if something's done that doesn't have to be done for a week. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that you are very right in that the corporate counsel uh, role seemed to get a little bit of a free pass when it came to the demands that they were placing on private practice. And it all seemed to be, you know, you just had to bow in the in the catch-all title of client centricity. It's like, well, in the long term, building an army of burnt-out alcoholic associates is not in the benefit of the client. Well, and you have to, and, and, and it's all interconnected. The corporate lawyer, the in-house counsel, emails the partner at 2 a.m. Who do you think's getting the email at 2.15 a.m.? Yeah, yeah, with some urgence and some exclamation yeah. points and, thrown in for good measure. And it may not be urgent at all, right? Yeah. You so, couldn't agree more. So it, 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 there needs to be a reset from top down. And we are seeing that to some extent, but it's a big profession. Resets take time. And uh, unfortunately, that's no consolation to the lawyer who's dealing with it. And who maybe now have you know struggling with mental health issues or just burnout? I just can't take this anymore. Yeah. So you know you're looking at lawyers now moving for work life. You know just better work life 
opportunities. Uh, you and I touched upon something that I wanted to dive back into earlier, and it's the question of, or the, the, the point of vulnerability. Now, on a personal level, vulnerability was absolutely uh, um, intrinsic to my recovery. And for one of a better word, I have found vulnerability to be somewhat addictive in that just by incorporating a brutal degree of self-awareness and honesty in your day-to-day is the single most liberating thing I've, I've ever done. Now, the hardest step that I found was the very first step to even sit down and go, I'm going to be honest with myself and and others. Do you find that, or do you agree, does it resonate that the, the most difficult step is that very first one to go when it comes to addressing vices and addictions, that first step to vulnerability is the most difficult and it tends to build on its own momentum once you've of gone course. on that journey. Uh, of course, because the first step is when we are the most ashamed, when we are afraid, most afraid of consequences, and when we probably have the uh, uh, when we probably have the uh, the least amount of tools to to deal with anything, the fewest tools to deal with anything. Yeah. So, I I I I akin it uh, to skydive. Okay. Uh, the hardest part, you know, you push yourself to the edge of the plane. You have all the parachutes. You have, you know, the guy with you. Maybe it's your first time and telling you everything's going to be okay. The hardest part isn't pushing yourself to the edge of the plane. The hardest part is the the weightlessness, right? Pushing yourself off and trusting the process. Isn't there and a crazy I, dichotomy between standing at a 2,000 feet up with wind whistling fast and a guy shouting, don't worry, it'll be okay? That's Gosh, right. Isn't that a great analogy for recovery, though? When you're looking that's down, right. there's no tools, there's no support, and there's someone yeah. just in the back of your head going, it's going to be okay, and then out yeah, you go. And, uh, <laughs> that's, why, uh, I mean, that's why it's hard, right? And uh, trusting the process is uh and taking that first step is very hard because uh you're afraid the parachute won't open Absolutely. as a matter of fact you're convinced i was convinced the parachute wouldn't open so and nobody was going to tell me differently that's it's scary and yeah. uh that is when we are that is when it is uh, the hardest and we are most and like i said we are terrified of consequences we are terrified of i was terrified of the future uh, i was terrified of all kinds of things and uh and, uh, and to put it into perspective for my story, I mean, I had been seeing a therapist for two years before I finally got honest with my own therapist. Lying, 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 because I was ashamed. And here, I'm ashamed with somebody I'm paying not to judge me and not telling them the truth. That that really resonates. I feel like you you can almost use it as a uh, as another defense mechanism in that how can I have a problem? I have a therapist. And you might give them a tiny nugget of truth. And then your own mind, you blow that truth up a hundredfold. And that was you being the most vulnerable you've ever been. Or in an actuality, you were playing yourself, you were playing them. And it's not until you actually turn on that honesty tap, the floodgates, that you're actually going to be progressing. I, it, it hits this recovery mind very hard when you mention that. I agree. And I agree. And in different, I mean, there's so much stigma we have. And, and, and you know, I, in, the, in, the, in your demographic, people that are going to be listening to this, there are certainly maybe a different type of cultural stigma 
just personally within yeah. families, uh, within friendships than there is in the U.S. So different, different demographics, different societies, different cultures are all in different places, right? Even in the U.K., uh, especially in the legal profession, at least from what I've seen, there is a much more open uh, there, there tends to be a more open conversation and more, I see more firms putting things in place uh, than, we, than we have in the U.S. People can't seem to be able to talk about it a little more. And so it's just different cultures and different, uh, are in different places with regards to stigma in general. Yeah. So I, if you can't, uh, it may be, there may not be that therapist. Uh, it may be just viewed as a complete disaster to tell anyone in your family. And there may be and stigma arises for reasons because things happen, right? There may be legitimate reasons. As an example, people I get from lawyers all the time. Well, I'm afraid if I seek help, I'll lose my job. Will I? They'll say, "Will I lose my job?" Well, I can't tell them they won't lose their job. Uh, they might. That's just a consequence, right? They're not going to. Uh, we have the American with Disabilities Act here. They're not going to just say, "Yeah, you're fired because you have an addiction issue," but. Things happen subtly. All of a sudden, you're not partner. All of a sudden, you're a kid. You get different cases. Can I say that won't happen? No, I can't say that. So it becomes it becomes more okay. What are if so? You're not going to seek help because you're afraid of that. Uh, addiction is a cumulative, progressive thing. Uh, it's it's not. It's probably. I'm not saying it will. I mean, it could, but it's probably not going to get any better. And especially the people who come to me. By the time yeah. they come to me, they're really struggling, yeah. right? It's not kind of on the line. It's interesting you talk about, you know, those guarantees around will you lose your job, you know, cool. You can't make those guarantees. But there's, there's a really interesting um, African context to this, actually, in that there is a, a growth of young uh, we'd call them bespoke or boutique law firms in 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 African markets, in particular in East Africa. There's a growth rate like nowhere else in the world. And my kind of call out to these firms is you're doing so many things differently and you are doing so many things better than the the older firms. You know, you're using technology, you're digitally savvy, you're hiring for talent, not for uh, um, nepotism and, and so on incorporate this as your next step to doing things well and doing things differently. And it's a compassionate, considerate, trauma-informed environment. Um, I feel like this is going to yield dividends a lot harder and a lot longer than giving all your associates an iPad. So that's a, a big call out for me. Well, and it, and I mean, and if you, if you look around at the data in different, uh, in, in, in different countries, it works. It absolutely yep. works. So there, it's it's not like people are pulling these ideas out of thin air. There, there, there is peer-reviewed data, the ABA study, to show, you know, and you're seeing how firms in the U.S. and firms in the U.K. too are doing these things. So there is a basis for for these new ideas. And it's a bottom line level. A happier, healthier workforce delivers better results, which delivers better revenues. That's that's being shown in your point. And your client doesn't fire you. Exactly. <laughs> right? And you know what? Your client might actually enjoy spending time with your associates rather than feeling like another forced drinks reception, uh, you know, with stifled conversation and, a, and an opportunity yeah. just to and, dampen spirits. <laughs> and that's another 
you bring up another good point of things we're learning here in the U.S. and that we are really pushing and has come a long way. And that starts in law school here. Uh, everything we do socially within the legal profession does not have to revolve around alcohol. 100%. So you see law firms, especially the Y2 and AM law, huge pushes and huge changes in how they network and what they offer and how drinking is viewed in terms of networking and socially. And so you see that there has been a huge change, huge change. And, and take it from two sober guys, you can have a way better corporate event without booze than you, you can with. Booze is like the lazy option. Hire well, a bar, stick a credit card. <laughs> I think, yeah. I think that, I mean, it's okay to find balance, okay? Because sure. I think most of us in recovery have to acknowledge that we are a minority. Most of the most people, most of the world can handle their alcohol. Yeah. Okay? So that doesn't, power mean a, to them. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't mean a firm has to go dry and everything yeah. they do, right? But you have to find balance. Uh, it can't, the, the purpose of any event shouldn't be to drink. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you have an event, you have... Uh, you know, you could limit drink. You can limit drinks with tickets. You can do this. You can do that. You make sure you have a robust non-alcoholic presence for the alcoholic presence, right? Yeah. You make sure that it is not stigmatizing as someone says, I don't want to drink. Well, Brian, and, I tell uh, you, I must say that the original fallback of orange juice, heaven forbid, has definitely moved on. And when I was at the mining in Darbor in Cape Town, which is a very heavy drinking environment. The law firms were doing a wonderful job in uh, zero alcohol beers and, and and the whole shebang. So I do think sure. it's I think it's a blend, like you say. Yeah, and you change the firm culture as well. So partners aren't pressuring, you know, mm. other associates aren't pressuring. You make it clear that look, we are uh, we we support you know we support people who choose not to drink for whatever reason i know people who don't want to drink just cuz they don't want to drink yep. they don't they're not you know they're not they don't have an alcohol problem they just chose as a lifestyle choice that they don't want to drink yeah and so uh it, it, it's important how the firms send that message out right that it is okay just to let people do what they want to do in terms of you know non-alcoholic uh networking and non-alcoholic socializing within the law firm structure and you see a lot of this coming about in the big law, in the uh, summer associates programs and things like that, where they set the tone yeah. that, you know, we're not going to be a firm. We're not, our, our associate class isn't going to be something that, you know, is revolves around drinking. A hundred percent. And Brian, that, that brings us to uh, time, but I did want to give you a very quick opportunity. You've You've given many words of wisdom and encouragement and uh, the risk of, well, with the intention of definitely not turning you into a soundbite. For those that do feel isolated uh, and really are struggling, you know, as lawyers with, with drink and substance abuse or even body dysmorphia, which you yourself struggled under, is there a, a quick message that you, you would share? Yes, there is. Okay. Regardless of what, if, what, uh, resources are not in place whatever in whatever your demographic is right uh worldwide remember worldwide forget the profession forget the profession you're a person you're a human being struggling worldwide there are so many resources that you can log on to and well virtually if you don't think there's anything locally for you uh because of stigma just because you're not in your profession isn't that place yet 
worldwide, there are all kinds of places you can go, whether it's uh, online 12-step meetings, online legal support meetings, just as people, just as people, because wherever you live in the world, bottle to mouth, right? If it's cocaine or whatever, opiates, pills, powder, it's all the same dynamic. So find the support somewhere. There are plenty of resources. There's a great one uh, worldwide called InTheRooms.com that has online 12-step meetings, online support meetings. So there is always some place to go. Uh, You just have to look. You just have to be willing to look. And And, and on the destigmatization side of things, Brian, I know that that Africa Legal ourselves are very active and wishing to be more active in this space. So we will publish this podcast under our Ubuntu Mental Health Matters program. And, And another call out to our community is we will publish stories and content, even anonymously, if needed, of people just talking about their struggles, whether it's with substances or mental health. So do do reach out to me. My contact details are freely available, and uh, and we'll keep keep this journey going and keep keep this discussion going. Um, Brian, an absolute pleasure today. I think you and I could natter on for for much longer, but, yeah. but a very big thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And as always, a very big thank you to all of our listeners. If you are new to the Africa Legal podcast, be sure to peruse our entire back catalogue, which is available on all good podcast providers. And as always, visit us at africalegal.com for all the news, views and insights that improve your life as a modern African legal practitioner. So without further ado, this is Tom and Brian signing off for the Africa Legal podcast. Take care.